Welcome to Watershed's October podcast. My name is Mark Cosgrove. I'm the cinema curator here at Watershed and delighted this month to be joined by Lisa Harewood and Jonathan Alley, who are 1230 Collective. Um, and they're joining me today because they're involved in, in getting films from Caribbean and Caribbean heritage out to wider, wider to audiences. And we are screening one of their films, No Place Like Home, um, in October, which we premiered um, actually at Cinema Rediscovered earlier this year, and is the legendary Jamaican director, Perry Hensel's kind of follow-up to The Harder They Come. And we're also screening Story of the Three Day Pass, which again, we premiered at um, Cinema Rediscovered, and which is the debut feature of the recently sadly departed Melvin Van Peebles, who was an absolutely iconic, groundbreaking um, director, black director, African-American director, who's probably most well-known for his film Sweet, Sweetback's Badass Song. Um, but interestingly, both Melvin Van Peebles and Perry Hensel occupy really prominent positions in creating on-screen representations of black experience, which were really um, quite uh, changed the nature I think, of um, black representation in very um, dramatic ways. And we can come on to, to talk about that. Um, but the interesting thing that, that also connects the films is that they are restorations and that these were films that were made um, way back when, but through the films being restored, um, they've been able to kind of be refreshed and put out in front of audiences again. Um, and and so bringing um, Lisa and Jonathan in and um, thanks very much for joining me today. And this is what you're you're. Well, tell us about Twelve Thirty Collective first of all. So we formed Twelve Thirty Collective uh, two two years ago. Actually, yesterday was our first event. We both moved here separately. Me from Barbados, Jonathan from Trinidad, and we knew each other back in the Caribbean, having worked in the industry, worked uh, in festivals and in actual film production. And one of the things that we felt was missing in the Caribbean, in the UK film landscape was Caribbean films. We felt there were Caribbean films that sort of been relegated to this position where you kind of bring them over and show them to the community of Caribbean migrants in Caribbean settings for the purpose of sort of community building, community engagement. And many films weren't getting out beyond that. Um, and while that's an important uh, way to screen, we also felt that these films needed to be seen in mainstream venues, so-called mainstream venues, to wider audiences. They have a value as, as bits of cinema. Um, and so we formed a collective, which at the moment is a collective of two, yeah. <laughs> um, to uh, reach out to filmmakers that we knew and ask them you know, if we could screen their films here in the UK. Initially, just to industry, to get people to, to book them into venues, but increasingly, and probably prompted by lockdown, uh, directly to audiences um, online uh, during that period. Um, so that was kind of our, that was our origin, just a conversation about what we wanted to see Caribbean films do in UK. Actually, our first, our first screening was actually a public screening, was a rep screening, and it was a screening of um, some rather obscure, <laughs> Marxist Guyanese documentaries from the 1970s and it was a 16 millimeter screening here in right. London um, so that was kind of setting out our stall in a way to say you know um, it's not only about 
a certain kind of idea of what the Caribbean is in terms yeah. of, you know, um, representation. But, you know, uh, uh, yeah, I mean, the idea was, you know, the, 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 the Caribbean is, is, is wide, it is deep and, you know, um, there, you know, there's great diversity there. So, you know, we wanted to, you know, show all that diversity in, in, in the films we were bringing. And, and is there, tell us a bit about the Caribbean film making scene. I mean, is there? I mean, you you think about the Caribbean in terms of literature, in terms of music, in terms of sport, but you don't you, you know think about the Caribbean as a film industry, as a film yeah. you know that, yeah. that sort of way. So is, is there a kind of thriving um, filmmaking scene? Well, scene is the right word because it's not you know you wouldn't really characterize it as an industry. I think with the exception of, well, Cuba has always been the exception, you know, the exception to the rule in, in, in the Caribbean when it comes to cinema. And more recently, the Dominican Republic has really sort of stepped up their game. And I suppose you could say they have an, an industry, but no, you're right. I mean, otherwise, and particularly in the English speaking Caribbean, it's more of a scene than a, a yeah. proper industry. Um, and you're right. I mean, the Caribbean has traditionally more been known when it comes to the arts uh, for, for uh, the literary, you know, it's literary, output and in fact i don't know if you if you know this but uh the name of our collective 1230 collective comes from a poem by derek walcott the <laughs> saint lucian uh nobel laureate um yeah. in there's a line in one of his poems where he goes all port of spain is a 1230 show some playing kojak some fidel castro and the 1230 uh references to the time that all the cinemas the old cinema palaces in the caribbean used to all screen at the same time and that first screening of the day was at 12 30. <laughs> so yeah, right right great yeah, yeah a little tangent there but yeah there is a as you said a scene um and you know there were kind of like two waves in the in the in the early 70s which is when you know uh uh perry hensel made um uh, the harder they come and then started on no place like home there was a flurry of activity in trinidad there were a few films made um, you know, and it was around the time of, you know, um, black liberation and this idea of, mm. you know, um, of black filmmakers and filmmakers from the global south in general, kind of, you know, through, you know, the movements around third cinema and, and cinema novo and so on, you know, um, really starting to uh, take control of, 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 of uh, their own narratives and tell their own stories. Um, but that was kind of short lived. I mean, for various reasons, one, of course, being you know, filmmaking remains a very expensive uh, proposition. Mm. And, you know, it was difficult to sustain um, film production there. So uh, things kind of died out. Uh, and then there was a bit of a, re a revival, you know, kind of happened, uh, I would say, you know, the beginning of this millennium with the coming of the digital revolution. And now we have a new generation of filmmakers who are making films, making making work across, across the Caribbean. But it still remains, yes, very much a a scene there really isn't a sort of embedded kind of industry with very strong institutions mm -hmm. but work is is getting made and can, you know and more and more and you know mm -hmm. better work is, is, is and i guess part of the collective's uh, um, strategy is to kind of raise awareness of that kind of filmmaking practice uh, more 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 widely and connect the, the the you know current filmmakers with that kind of more global and international side yeah, for sure. I mean, as a region, we were kind of primarily known as a backdrop to other people's films. And I think young filmmakers coming up now have kind of that line that we've taken from Derek Walcott's poem, I think is a perfect illustration of the quandary that young filmmakers find themselves in. Are you 
Kojak or are you Castro? Well, it, it, it's, really <laughs> it's really interesting point, and of course that that relates relates to the Marxist um, earlier point about yeah. that, how how the Caribbean sits in that sort of relationship between the South, South South America, I guess, mm-hmm. and that sort of more more kind of radical um, politics and and the North, which is the 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 home of Hollywood. And I mean, it's, I was just thinking as you were talking earlier, I was thinking it was the same in the UK. I mean, is is a UK filmmaker, is, is their ambition to be in Hollywood or is their ambition to tell their own stories and connect that with the sort of global global market? And I guess, I mean, does the Caribbean feel that tension very much between is it a kind of, do we make genre films or do we make, you know, um, do we make Hollywood films or do we speak to Hollywood or do we want to make stuff that's about our own um, identities? I think similar to other, you know, smaller nations do, making films, there is that kind of tension between are we trying to create some sort of national cinema that has a has a larger um, part to play in things like social cohesion and and cultural pride or are we trying to kind of create an industry that makes jobs and earns foreign exchange and I think traditionally we've chosen the other one where we're a location for other Mm. people's films and you know young filmmakers are deeply influenced by the media that they see i you know i go to graduate shows at the local university and people go oh my influence is beyonce's lemonade mm-hmm. you know the references aren't necessarily cinema they're music yeah. videos they're you know other bits of work on youtube which is fair enough but i think increasingly we're discovering as well another set of filmmakers who do have a kind of deep appreciation of our film heritage our literary heritage several of whom have studied in Cuba and even those who studied in the U.S. who have kind of really taken on third cinema and social realism as a as a kind of a a template for what they want to do but yeah I think as with everywhere else Mm. these filmmakers are not sort of all you know yeah it's not one it's not one one coherent yeah yeah yeah. it's it's different people with different ideals yeah and and is there is there a, a is there a lively cinema going uh, you know, you know, in the UK, we're very, you know, you're caught between multiplexes dominate the 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 cinema going landscape. There are some independents like Watershed and other kind of independent cinemas, um, but it's a, you sort of feel that struggle, as it were, um, to get those kinds of films shown, um, certainly in a multiplex. But what what is the cinema going like at the moment? Yeah, sadly, uh, there really is no independent uh, uh, film, um, you know, uh, scene, uh, film, film exhibition scene in the Caribbean. I mean, traditionally, uh, you know, I mean, uh, it, it was the sort of, you know, the old fashioned cinema palaces and they were screening mostly, you know, Hollywood, mm. Hollywood films. Although there was, of course, in places like Trinidad and Guyana that has, you know, uh, that have large uh, uh, Indian descended populations, you also got Bollywood films. Mm. Um, and in the 70s, too, you started getting lots of um, Hong Kong uh, Kung Fu films. Um, so there were those, but uh, it was, you know, mostly Hollywood. And, uh, you know, as with other places, those cinema palaces started dying out with the coming of video in the 80s. You know, I remember, you know, growing up as a boy, getting the last of that culture, you know, going to these old crumbling, very visibly crumbling cinema palaces that all ended up becoming evangelical churches, Christian churches. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then, you know, at the turn of the century is when the multiplexes start coming in. And that's what we've got now. It's a multiplex culture in most of the 
most of the English speaking Caribbean islands. And, um, you know, and that's, that's going to be Hollywood then. Yeah. And, and that continues to be mostly Hollywood. So, uh, you know, if you want to get non Hollywood, you know, seen on Hollywood films and, uh, you know, in, in, in public spaces, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's from, you know, sort of like, you know, the little film festivals that have popped up. I mean, I, I was a programmer at the Trinidad and Tobago Film Festival uh, for the first 10 years uh, that it, it, it ran and it actually ran at one of the multiplexes. You know, we were in the middle yeah. of, we were in the middle of this Hollywood, you know, Miami style multiplex screening independent films from the Caribbean and around the world, you know. Uh, so that continues to be the, uh, to be the, the, the sort of, uh, you know, scene there. Um, there really aren't, you know, um, uh, those independent um, uh, cinemas that you find elsewhere. I'm just, I'm just wondering whether maybe, um, maybe Watershed's business planning could extend to um, developing a, a Caribbean uh, satellite uh, <laughs> cinema. Let's work on that one. Let's work on that one. Well, Bristol and Barbados have a have a historical connection, so I'll, I'd put my vote in for. Okay, for yeah, excellent. Well, the, the campaign starts here. <laughs> and I think you know, I think the irony of that is that of not having these independent venues is that you're much more likely as a Caribbean filmmaker to have your film seen overseas than yeah. locally. Um, and because we are these sets of different territories, we're not one continuous landmass. Yeah. You know, it's very hard to, to get yourself in multiple venues across multiple countries. Mm. Um, so it's, it's more than likely that many of these films aren't even seen in the country in which they were made, which I think is the biggest shame of all. Yeah. And a well, big well, part of that is venues and distribution. And when they are, it's usually, you know, you four-wall the cinema, you know, yeah. to, to get it screened to. Yeah. And and it, but that, that also relates to the, the scene, the filmmaking scene. You know, it's so important that people come together around watching films. And that that's often what connects creatives and, and ideas and having that sort of... So I guess, you know, I guess the, the, the pop-ups happen, the people actually put on... Because I know that that's something that's happening a lot more in the UK and, and cities that, you know, kind of people are taking it you know, because it is easier technology-wise, people are actually sort of doing pop-up events and sort of self-organizing, which is really interesting. Yeah, there, there are those sorts of um, uh, uh, initiatives that have been happening, you know, um, you know, to different degrees in, in, in different places, people doing their sort of, you know, own thing. And you often find, for example, you know, filmmakers will get together and they will, you know, have a public screening of their films together you know in a park or something of course in a place like the caribbean you know you've got great weather most of the year round so you can have these nighttime screenings and um you know they're wonderful and to be able to do that you know but it's still yeah very much a sort of uh grassroots kind of um mm. you know movement yeah so so tell us about um no place like home i, I mentioned in the beginning um at the opening about perry hensel i mean he is uh, I mean, you know, The Harder They Come is such an iconic film. Um, it's so well known um, internationally. Uh, it's it sort of Jimmy Cliff, that iconic image of Jimmy Cliff standing there. Um, it, it's so unbelievable, you know, strong. And it really it really asserted a kind of um, black Jamaican uh, presence um, on on screen. And then I was I, I was. Really, as I was surprised by the story, the three-day pass, and we'll come on to that later. But I was really surprised to find out that, well, both how difficult it was for Perry Hensel to then sort of, you know, make another feature. That this other feature was um, not completed, but has only recently been completed. No place like home. So just tell us a bit about um, the sort of backstory to No Place Like Home. 
Well, yeah, I mean, you know, the this sort of uh, 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 general belief is that, uh, you know, Perry Hensel was a one and done filmmaker, right? Uh, you know, he shot his load, as they say, and th that was that, uh, you know, this one great film cult yeah. classic and uh you know uh that was the beginning and end but he was a serious artist he had long-term ambitions um in terms of you know the kinds of uh films he wanted to make the you know and and uh he went into production of no place like home right after basically making uh, uh the harder they come which hadn't yet paid back its investors so he you know he had very little money to start uh in 1973 to start the production of no place like home but beside that, it was also a very specific kind of vision he had for the film. He wasn't looking to make The Heart of the Come Part 2. This was, mm -hmm. you know, a more experimental proposition, a cinema verite, very sort of freeform kind of film, very much inspired by the new American cinema of the time. You know, there's, you know, strong influences of Cassavetes and, mm. and, 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 and so on in the film. It didn't have a shooting script. Uh, you know, there were no A-list stars in the film, you know, mostly non-professional actors playing thinly fictionalized versions of themselves in this in this road movie that he was making um you know and he wanted to say some very serious things about J jamaican society and the development of of the country and where it was going and he was a maverick really he just wanted he wanted to do things his way so uh you know he scraped together what little money he could to start the production um and then when that money ran out he stopped and then you know uh it was a start and stop production throughout the 70s he shot hundreds of television commercials he was a he was an advertising man to get the money to be able to you know get the production going again and um yeah that was the that was the story of the of the production of the film until 1981 when he finally felt he had enough footage to complete the film and he said you know the, this film is just you know dominating my life i can't have this anymore so i'm going to finish it now and uh, that's when the beginning of the you know the the great gap begins because he goes to the u.s where he sent the footage for storage and he goes to the U.S. Um, to the storage facility in New Jersey, uh, where the footage was sent. And they give him his film cans. He opens them up, and he finds a porn film inside. He doesn't find his. <laughs> it 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 had been lost, and it remained lost for something like twenty five years. Right, incredible. And 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 how was I mean that must have been devastating for him to have to have filmed that because of course it's on film. It's not digital. This is this is analog times. So. Yeah, it's sixteen millimeter film. Um, yeah. And uh, he, uh, he, of course, was devastated, shattered, came back to Jamaica and basically decided, you know, that was it. He was not going to make another film. And he began writing. He wrote a lot. He wrote novels. He wrote essays. He wrote journalism. In fact, he wrote a novel about Jamaica's involvement in the Cold War called Power Game that he wanted to convert into a screenplay. And that would have been his third feature if he'd you know, mm -hmm. been able to make it. Uh, so yeah, so he, he, he began writing, his wife became a hotelier and the family got into the hotel business, which is a bit, yeah. ironic, bit ironic when you consider the, uh, you know, the story of, uh, no yeah. but that's basically what happened until 2004, when finally the, uh, the footage turned up. And where, where did that, where did it turn up? Where had it been? So what happened was, uh, Island Records, which is, was at the time owned by Chris Blackwell, who is mm. Jamaican. Island Record owned the facility where um, uh, Perry was sending all the footage to be kept. And in 2004, Island was sold to Polygram and Polygram was taking inventory of all the stock. And they called up Justine Hensel, Perry's daughter, um, because she'd been trying to find the film over the years and she kept calling around. And they said, uh, this is in LA. And they said, uh, 
we've found some boxes here with some film cans and they've got Perry Hensel, No Place Like Home written on them. And we know you've That's been trying to, trying to find, trying to find a, uh, a film. This might be it. So she hops on a plane to LA. She does not tell her father that they found the film because if the footage wasn't usable, she didn't want his heart broken yeah. a second time by this film, right? So they get to LA, they open the cans, they find out that the footage is indeed usable, although, you know, most of it is not in good condition. So they've got to do some restoration work. Mm. So they tell Perry he is incredulous, but also very excited to finish the film. And of course, there's now a race against time because Perry was terminally ill with uh, mm. cancer. Mm. So they came back to Jamaica. They decided, Perry decided he wanted to do some additional shoots, you know, to complete the story. And they also had to do some restoration, restoration work at the same time. So Finally, in 2006, they were able to cobble together a cut of the film that they premiered at the Toronto Film Festival in September 2006. Mm. It wasn't perfect. It wasn't finished. There was a lot of work still to be done in the edit as well as the restoration. But Perry was finally able to see his vision. That's up, amazing. Up so he, he was at that screening. He was at that, that screening. Toronto. They returned to Jamaica, uh, intending to have uh, the Jamaican premiere in November at the Flashpoint Film Festival there. Um, but sadly, tragically, the night before that screening, Perry passed away. Oh, no. Yeah. So he, he was unable to be a part of it. But as Justine has said in, you know, a number of the Q&As we've been doing for the film, Perry obviously, you know, felt that now that the film was in the world, it would live. Yeah. He could, he could go, you know. That's an, that's an amazing story. And, and um, you know, thank Thank goodness that big companies keep inventories of their assets, you know. (laughs) Yes, but of course that wasn't uh, the end of the story because that's 2006 and it's now 2021. Yeah. And the film is only now coming into theatres. The reason being, well, not only did they have to um, re-edit the film according to, you know, the notes, the extensive notes that Perry left behind um, and continue, you know, finish the restoration work. But also there was this amazing soundtrack of, you know, music from Bob That's Marley. That's always the, a problem. Bob Marley and the Whalers to, <laughs> to, to John Denver, to Etta James, to Carly Simon. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Copyright. And that, yeah, and, the, you know, and uh, either you have, as they say, you know, you have lots of money or you, you know, take lots of time. <laughs> they yeah. didn't have the money, so it took a lot of time for them to, uh, you yeah, know. yeah. yeah be able to uh, clear all the clear all the music rights for the film and uh, that finally happened in 2019 so right incredible yeah. and of course it's it, the, the it's got a young um a young grace jones which is it her debut performance then on on screen i believe it is and uh, you know you can see that even then yeah she was destined to be a star. Yeah. Like the you, moment you could, she, you could tell a star was born. Yeah. The <laughs> moment she appears in the frame. And it's, yeah. it's interesting because, you know, Carl Bradshaw, the actor playing Carl, looks out the, the window in the car and is just stunned by this woman crossing in front of the car. And we are too as an audience because yeah. she turns and you see her face yeah. and you go, oh my God, even if you didn't know that this was Grace Jones, mm. we'd all be seeking out the director to say, who is that woman? Stop in, in, in your tracks. In your tracks. Yeah. 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 And, and again, that I mean that that fact, which of course you, you know um, th- that could have been so easily lost. That you know, I mean, the film, um, which which for Perry Hensel would have been tra- tragic, um, but here we have the you know this star um, early performance, which goes back to that whole thing about restorations and, and keeping film alive, and you know the, the the work that you that you guys are doing um, around this film. And which is which is 
now going to be shown in Bristol as well as other cinemas across the UK, but we're showing it in, um, in October. Uh, and it's just that backstory. So I hope the listener is saying, I want to see that film in the cinema um, and take with them that, that incredible story when they're of the history of the film when, they, when they're sitting watching it in the cinema. Yeah, so, it's, uh, it's, it's, yeah it, 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 it utterly repays you know, mm. uh, viewing on the big screen, you know, that uh, 70s footage of the Jamaican, you know, uh, landscape, you know, yeah. uh, it's just absolutely incredible. And of course, Jamaica does not look like that now. You know, so much of what we see in the film, it really is a time capsule because it's not like that anymore. It's been, you know, the development that has just completely, you know, changed the landscape. It's not like that anymore. And to see, to see that landscape uh, in tandem with hearing that soundtrack, yeah, yeah, yeah. It just does magical things. It's 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 alchemic, really. Yeah, which is which is also it's important in terms of Jamaican culture, identity. You know, those that that sense of self. It's important that this film exists um, and is able to be um, seen again. Whereas if it had, if it had not been, if the inventory person hadn't got in touch, <laughs> uh, you know, it would just it wouldn't have been, you know it wouldn't exist any longer. And you, you sense the fragility, as it were, of of film and the fragility of culture in that respect so 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 you've been touring it um since the premiere in july across the uk and, and is it further as well further afield at the moment we're just doing uk screenings mm. um next year happens to be the 50th anniversary of the harder they come and so yeah. you know we really hope that what will come out of that the, the film having this exposure this year is that perhaps there'll be many double bills because you're really seeing such a range those two films when you know if you juxtapose them are yeah, such yeah. different views of jamaica and jamaican culture one is urban one is rural um the styles are completely different and i think it would really position perry hensel in the in a particular kind of film pantheon as somebody who yeah you know, definitely was not one and done but not only was he not one and done but the breadth of his kind of cinematic understanding is a lot wider than I think people appreciate. And when you see No Place Like Home, you, you just watch it and you're stunned. As somebody who grew up in the Caribbean and got into filmmaking, if I had seen that film when I was an aspiring filmmaker, that completely would yeah. have changed my understanding of what was possible and yeah. what, I, what I might aspire to. Um, and I think, you know, even after all of this time, it's such an inspirational film. Mm -hmm. So we hope that by laying the foundation of taking it on tour this year, that perhaps next year more venues will, even more venues will book it. And are you, at the screenings um, that you've been at, do, is there a, um, a Caribbean diaspora audience that's, that, that's, that's been seeing it as well? I mean, is that? Yeah, there's been, uh, it, it's been mixed audiences. So we've had, yeah. you know, the Caribbean uh, diaspora audiences who, uh, but I, I think everyone in general just absolutely floored that this film exists. It's so extraordinary. You know, one, that Perry Enzel made a second film that was, you know, just so different from The Harder They Come. It just, you know, really, really surprises people. But also, secondly, that um, after all this time and so much, you know, adversity, that the film was finally able to make the screens. So people are just so grateful that they're able to see this film mm -hmm. now, um, regardless of how long it's taken and, you know, um, you know all, all the challenges. Just to have it now is just a gift, really. And, and audiences have really responded to that. Mm -hmm. Great. And the specific response of, of kind of Jamaican 
audiences. We had a screening on Jamaican Independence Day. And a specific response from people is that I've never seen Jamaica look like this. Like yeah. if they were born here and they went back on visits to family, maybe they have a memory of the countryside. One person said the specific journey that Carl, the road trip that Carl takes in the film no longer exists because now there's toll roads and highways and things. But back when he was growing up, that would be the exact journey that he would take to go from point A to point yeah. B. And as the film goes along this journey, he was reminiscing about all these journeys he'd taken as a, as a child. I think it really... Um, I would say it's to Justine, yes, it's a lightly fictionalized film, but it's actually, it's a documentary for a lot of people mm-hmm. about not just a space and a time, but the people that they meet along the way are the kind of stock characters that, that people remember growing up with as they, as they traverse the Jamaican landscape. So yeah, I think it's really, it's powerful for everybody, but it's incredibly powerful for the Jamaicans yeah. who see it. And it's also a very important document of Rasta culture, yeah. quite, quite possibly the very first sort of, you know, on-screen validation of Rastafarian culture. And, you know, had the film come out when it should have done in the 70s, what mm-hmm. that could have done, yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, on, on many levels, but, you know, on, on that level, you know, could have been, you know, immense. Yeah. Well, as I say, it's, it's on this month at Watershed. And um, it, again, this theme of restoration that um, I mentioned at the beginning, it's so important in rewriting and representing film and film culture and our understanding of it. And as you say, Perry Hensel um, could have been viewed as a one-hit wonder um, with, with the hard of the common. And w- what a hell of a hit, <laughs> a one-hit to have. But, you know, here, here you're seeing the, the, his, the evolution of, of creative practice. And it, it's, it struck me with um, the story The Three Day Pass by Melvin Van Peebles, which... I, if you mention Melvin Van Peebles, you, you, most people who know their film would say Sweet, Sweetback's Badass Song, um, which was this incredible sort of redefining of black experience on screen. And kind of, he's the godfather of, of that African-American um, filmmaking that led to, you know, influence Spike Lee, influenced Ava DuVernay, influenced Job Peel, everybody. He kind of loved, and, and here's this film that he made as a debut feature, the story of the three-day pass which I'd never heard of. I'm a cinema curator. I'd never heard of it. Um, and, and it was restored a couple of years back by the Hollywood Press Association and uh, Mario Van Peebles, Melvin Van Peebles' son. It was shown at Cannes, but because Cannes, with COVID, it was just online, so there wasn't really a lot of press about it. I got sent it by the, U- the US um, sales distributor, Janice Films, and they said, oh, you might want to have a look at this. What is it? Oh, it's this film by Melvin Van Peebles called Hey, okay, watched it, completely blown away by it, the energy of it. It's it's like a French nouvelle vague. You, you influenced um, film and you he made it in Paris. And you dig into this story and find out that you know Melvin Van Peebles couldn't get into he was making short films, he wanted to get into the film industry, he knocked on Hollywood's door. He was black, there was racism, he wasn't um, welcomed at all. Um, but also he couldn't make films, feature films, because he didn't have a union ticket, as it were. Um, and then this curator in New York sends his short films to Paris, to Henri Longois, legendary curator for the Cinematheque in Paris. He wants to screen the films. Invites Melvin Van Peebles over. Melvin Van Peebles has got a young family, takes them over to Europe, 
sets up in Paris, received with open arms. They love his films. And he realises that in, in France, they have a, a rule, cultural rule, which says if you write a novel, you can direct the feature film adaptation of that novel. So Melvin thinks, well, I'll, I'll, write, I'll write the book first. So he writes the book, one of four in Paris, and then makes the story of the three-day pass as a feature film, does the music, writes it, directs it, edits it, produces it, does the music for it, the complete template for Sweet, Sweet Backs by that song. And then the French submit it to the San Francisco Film Festival in 68, 69. So it's shown as a part of a, as a French film in the San Francisco Film Festival. And this American Hollywood producer says to the San Francisco Film Festival directing team, I want to meet the French guy that made Story of the Three Day Pass. And they're introduced to, to this black American. Um, and the rest, as they say, but you know, I'm just completely unaware of this. And um, it's just an incredible, it's an incredible testament to Melvin Van Peebles' energy um, and, and sort of indefatigable creativity. But the film is, is phenomenal in and of itself. Um, and so it was great to present that at Cinema Rediscovered, great to uncover that story, great to have a kind of whole other aspect to Melvin Van Peebles' sort of genius, um, which, which has now sadly become a kind of in-memory in, in screening um, of, of this film. But, but Jonathan, you were saying earlier, you, you, you saw it at Cinema Rediscovered. What did, what did you think of the film? Yeah, I, like you, I, I hadn't heard of it before, uh, you know, and we all, you know, had this idea of Melvin Van Peebles, right? You know, uh, Sweet Sweet Back and, and Elephant, you know, um, Watermelon Man. Mm. Uh, and then to see this film and just be like, it's, it's astonishing. It's, it's, it's an amazing film. It's Nouvelle Vague meets black exploitation, basically. It's, yeah, yeah. It's, a, it's, 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 it's a totally sort of, um, you know, sweet genre film. It's, it's, there's nothing like it. You know, I've never seen a film like this. And it's, you know, it's got a, you know, a wonderful performance by the Guyanese British actor Harry Baird in mm -hmm. the lead. And it's just, you know, I mean, formally it's, 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 it's innovative and it's just doing things in terms of theme. I mean, while, while Hollywood was pussyfooting around the idea of, of, of interracial relationships with guests who's coming to Hollywood, I mean, here's Melvin in Paris tackling yeah. it head on, you know? Yeah, and no, just, absolutely. You know, and doing it with wit, doing it with style, yeah. doing it with, you know, bravado uh, and, and, and subversion. And it's, it, it really is just, just, just an amazing, an amazing piece of work. And just, uh, yeah, again, it's just one of those stories, you know, like, you know, the horror they come to think that, for so long, this film was not able to be seen, and here we have it now, and it's absolutely amazing. It's yeah. just a film everyone should see. What what um what I was really pleased about when we screened it in July is you know there's there's some young filmmakers in Bristol, um young black filmmakers in in, in Bristol who are trying to get you know they're getting shorts made, they're trying to get feature films made, and um I I, I said to um, Michael Jenkins, one of them, you you got to see this film, you know, you've really got to see this film. Um, and and he, he came along and watched it at, at the festival. And I, I spoke to him after the screening, and he, and he said, "Wow, that's a real kick up the arse that is." Um, you know, just get on and do it. Just get yeah. on and do and, it. You know, and, and you know, and and uh, you know, Melvin's career is just one of those things that uh, you know, it's just such a great sort of template 
that you know independent filmmakers can look at and say you know yeah. I can you know I can do it because he makes this film it 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 gets him the entree into Hollywood that he so longed for for you know for for so many years uh, he gets carte blanche basically to make uh, Watermelon Man which is a huge success and mm-hmm. then you know Hollywood is throwing themselves at him giving him you know three picture deals and he rejects all of them all of them and he goes independently to make Sweet Sweet Back and, yeah, yeah. and you know and and I want to say to independent filmmakers you can do that too. Yeah. You don't have to follow the rules and you can yeah. still make great art and be successful on your own terms. Yeah. But you've got to know what you want to do and you've got to persevere like Melvin Van Peebles did. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, absolutely. And, and as I say, hearing about his um, passing um, last week, it was, really, it was really sad, but I, 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 there was a part of me which said, you know, um, we, we got that debut feature out. Um, and it's important, like, with No Place Like Home, that these films get, get, get shown in cinemas. And I'm really pleased to see that, you know, it's been getting more bookings across the UK um, and that people can, can admire and celebrate um, the creativity of Melvin Van Peebles. Um, and it's just so important, um, certainly for me and for you guys, that um, seeing it in the cinema and engaging with cinema history as well as the sort of contemporary. So thank you very, very much, uh, Lisa and Jonathan, um, Twelve Thirty Collective. I'm sure that people will be able to catch you at some point in some cinema in some place uh, across the UK, if not, if, if not the rest of the rest of the world. The, the films that we've been discussing, uh, No Place Like Home and Story of Three Day Pass, are on at Watershed. If you go to watershed.co.uk, um, you can find out more um, and hopefully see you in the cinema. Thank you very much, Lisa and Jonathan. Thank you, Mark. Thank you.